every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Jamie Grenny, CMO of Own Backup. Prior to Own Backup, Jamie spent 11 years at Salesforce learning from the best in the business. Most recently, he led a large product marketing and enablement team as a global VP at Okta and is now working on making Own Backup into his fourth unicorn. On this episode, Jamie discusses the death of cold outreach, the right way to make impactful video content, how to cultivate a great sales marketing relationship, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Jamie Grenny, CMO of Own Backup, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by special guest, Jamie. How are you? Hey, Ian. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on your show. Yeah, excited to have you. We are beyond excited to chat about uh, what you're doing at Own Backup and all the, the stops along the way. So let's get into it. What was your first job in Demand Gen? My first job in Demand Gen, I think it would, uh, it would probably be creating haunted houses. And uh, I kind of say that tongue in cheek, but that's where I got my start in marketing. You know, years ago, we did this in a, I probably was 13 years old. We, we did this in a friend's dilapidated greenhouse. And over the years, it got bigger and bigger. And eventually, we convinced the local high school to let us use their black box theater. But with those haunted houses, all of the principles of marketing kind of came together. You know, it was about the lighting and the sound and the set design and the promotion. You know, back in those days, Demand Gen was about posters and flyers and stirring up word of mouth. But really, the concepts are, are very much the same through all the different uh, jobs I've had in my career. Locked in, Jamie. I love it. So, you know, flash forward to today. Tell us about being CMO of Own Backup. So uh, I joined Own Backup about four months ago, and it's been great. You know, I've been really fortunate to get plugged back into the Salesforce ecosystem. I spent 11 years at, at Salesforce. And so when you get to understand a product and a community and, and an ecosystem in that type of way, it pays huge, huge dividends. But, you know, I kind of taking a step back to my job search, when I think about joining a company, you know, the first lens you, you kind of look for is growth. Because if you can find a company that is, is growing fast, you have a platform to recruit top talent. You have the opportunity to, to see something get bigger and bigger. And, um, and so you kind of have to look for that growth. You have to take a step back and, and look like a venture investor. And in known backup, what I saw is I saw early market dominance on the app exchange. They have four times as many five-star reviews as the next closest competitor. They've got that customer love. And yet there's a huge addressable market to go after. You know, Salesforce has 150,000 customers and own backup. Salesforce is the first ecosystem, but there are a lot of other cloud providers that, that could benefit from a similar product. I love the insight uh, into the thought process there. I think, you know, so often people kind of wonder 
how certain CMOs got to where they are. And that kind of piece is a little missing, you know, joining the hot company. But obviously, you, you know, you had the resume with a lot of other hot companies. How did you kind of leverage some of those experiences kind of growing up with, you know, being in and around all those tech companies? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to work for, I guess, maybe three unicorns at this point, and hopefully own backup will be the fourth. And uh, more than anything, you take out of those career experiences, the network that those companies attract. So it's amazing when, it, when I go back and I look through my, my contacts to see who can be helpful, who can help find a great candidate, who I can bounce something off of. I'm constantly going back to, to my former colleagues. So um, it's hugely important to look at the company that you're working for and say, am I surrounded by great people? Because you are going to be the product of the five people you surround yourself with. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? So this is where you're going to feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. I want to know, what is your demand gen strategy? Well, when you think about demand gen, I think you have to take a step back and you got to think big picture. Back when I was at Salesforce, we had this concept of the four horsemen, and it was about inbound pipeline, outbound BDR source pipeline, AE source pipeline, and your partners. And so those are the four engines you want to think about. How do you build those for scale? How do you measure them? How do you grow them 5 or 10x? And so um, when when I think about those engines, I, I go to each of these groups and say, what can we do to increase their respective productivity? What are the dials we can turn? Now, I should say that the term four horsemen is, is something we used at Salesforce and Okta, but when I introduced it at Own Backup, I caught a little bit of heat because of the apocalyptic uh, reference there. So we decided to add a fifth horseman to kind of clear that up. And, and so we think of our CSM team as the fifth horseman. And while CSMs don't always hold a quota, they're your farmers. They're the people that can help you find those add-on deals, the upsell revenue, and, and obviously drive retention in your accounts. So when you think about demand gen, thinking about those four or those five horsemen is really the the place to start. So as you look at your five horsemen there, does demand gen fit into each of those in a way? Or how are you structured, you know, as a marketing org and then specifically within demand gen? Yeah, so demand gen absolutely fits into each one of those. So you can think about the inbound pipeline. You have an events team. You have people that are are focused on paid acquisition. When you think about the outbound team and the AE source pipeline, a lot of that gets into your ABM efforts and what is your concerted focus there. And then on the partner side, you've got partner marketing, clearly. So there are people who support each of these functions, and they come together to try to, to help them be more productive. How can they help them sell more? Sure. And so, you know, what does your demand gen org look like as part of that? Well, sort of big picture, my org structure, we've got sales owning the BDR team and the enablement team. And so marketing is really focused on the core marketing disciplines. We've got an ops and analytics team. That's your most critical foundation, you know, getting Salesforce set up right, your marketing automation, your measurement. That's where it begins. You've got to be able to to have a strong foundation. From there, it's about getting your, your content team right. You know, your writers, designers, video production, the brand, you want to get to the point where you have a factory for creating really compelling content for your various campaigns. And then it's about customer evangelism. You want to make sure that you've got customers who are advocating. You've got a bench of references that you can use as validation in your materials. 
You've got the web team who is uh, in charge of your website, but in our case, also our social channels and our app exchange listings. You've got product marketing, which is focused on launches and uh, competitive oftentimes. You've got lifecycle marketing, paid comms, international. There, there are a number of teams that all come together to, to support that demand gen vision. So talk me through your processes as it relates to you know, your personas. Who are you going after? What does the market look like for own backup? So the market for own backup today is, is we got our start focusing on the Salesforce customers. So there are 150,000 Salesforce customers out there who are using their, their core products. And uh, what own backup does is we proactively prevent data disruptions. Nobody wants data downtime. And so what does that mean? Well, I was at Salesforce for 11 years. And in that time, you know, it never crossed my mind that you needed to backup data that was in the cloud. You know, Salesforce does an amazing job of delivering great reliability and security and performance, but it's a shared responsibility model. And so customers are responsible for the data errors and corruption that they create. You know, that could be user error, it could be malicious intent, it could be um, an integration error or a bug in software that causes data in Salesforce to get corrupted. And when that happens, all of a sudden the business can stop or your personalization can break. So you can imagine if you overwrote a, uh, a field on the opportunity record or the order record, all of a sudden things kind of grind to a halt. So what Own Backup does is we proactively take a backup of customers' data on, on a daily basis. And so they can very easily kind of use our tools to recover quickly. They can see what went wrong. They can see what the data looked like before and after, and they can kind of push forward uh, the, the changes back into production. So it's like a big undo button. In terms of our personas, we really think about our personas as uh, kind of three different high-value targets. And we went through an amazing exercise with the Article Group. I highly recommend them. They're a terrific organization. But we took everything we knew from our, our sales team and, and the history of the company, and we tried to distill down you know, who were our high-value targets. And we have one high-value target, which is, is Salesforce platform owners. So that can be a you know, Salesforce architect, it could be a Salesforce developer, a Salesforce administrator, anybody who has a vested interest in the Salesforce deployment. And so those individuals, like we had to drill into what is their key pain point because the challenge with own backup is that you know, it's, it's really an awareness challenge. It's making people realize that their data isn't backed up and what would happen if, if something went wrong. So as we drilled into it, the key pain point for Salesforce platform owners was that a data disruption looks like a massive unforced error and they're on the hook to clean it up. And it can take a long time. Like if you have a bunch of flat files and are trying to, to put the metadata back together, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing. So we tried to zero in on, on that particular persona and, and kind of pull that out and develop messaging that went along with that. You know, our other personas are, are personas like C-level leaders, like your CIO, CTO, CTO. They also don't want to look incompetent after a messy data disruption. We have another product called Archiver. So we, we have a product that is sold into compliance and chief risk officers. And once again, like getting into like what is the one single pain point that, that matters most to them. And in that case, it's really just uncertainty that, that managing compliance will, will be sustainable in the face of change. So we spent tons of time getting into personas and a great, great exercise because this is the type of messaging foundation that doesn't really change much year to year. So if you invest in it and get it right, 
you know, the team can leverage it for, for long periods of time and have a consistent brand voice. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, um, I think that, you know, as someone who jumped in, you know, a handful of months ago into the company, you know, it seems like it's the logical thing to do, right? To say, okay, I need to go through this process. Our whole team needs to go through this process. And the time that we invest right now will pay dividends for years to come because we know who's buying our product right now. You know, how, how many times do you think you'll revisit some version of this? Obviously, you know, you want to be talking to customers and prospects, you know, all the time from a marketing perspective, but you know, like how often will you kind of tweak those, uh, those things? Well, you know, when I first got to own backup, I spent the first two months just spending lots of time with the, the sales organization and then customer facing employees, trying to understand, you know, what messaging they were using and what was effective. And so I gathered all of this together. And, and as you get into different pockets of the organization, people all have their slant on how to explain things, how to tell the story, how to explain to new hires who we focus on. And so going through this exercise, we compiled it all and we might've gotten it 70% of the way there. But sometimes having that, that outside expert, that outside team come in, they can just give it a little bit of a twist and punch it up. And also there's times when engaging somebody from the outside is a good way to get cross-company validation that, okay, this has been blessed, this is good. Now, to answer your question, the short answer for that is that I don't expect it to change in big ways. I really do think that this is the company we've built over the last five years, and it maps to the trajectory of where we think we're going to be in the next five years. I really do think that there might be some small changes at the, the margins, but this is very foundational. Well, you also talked a lot about a bunch of different personas there, you know, like the Salesforce administrator who's in the weeds every day versus, you know, the chief digital officer, for example, of which, you know, has a nebulous title, you know, or a chief data officer or whatever it is, like CIOs and CTOs and everybody, they all have completely different roles and responsibilities per company. But the person who's, you know, at the ground level is is very different. How do you think about, you know, giving those folks, you know, the tools to be able to create demand around your product? Well, you're going to have to go deep into pain points at some point. But when, you, when you're trying to communicate to an organization of hundreds of people who are our, our high value targets, being able to distill down to something simple is, is really important. So for those C-level technology leaders, the CIO, the CTO, the CDO, the center of excellence, all of them take a macro view on how their organization deploy and manage their technology. They're all accountable for you know, major disruptions to their, the technology supporting their business. So you can lump all of them together. And when you think about things like designing you know, a, a, a sequence or a cadence, you, know, you can generally get 80% of the way there by speaking at that level. Now, obviously, when, when the deal gets handed off to an AE and it's a large enterprise deal, they're going to be in a spot where they have to get much, much more focused on the conversation and handle the specific objections of that particular role. But the first battle is to make sure that you have coverage. You have good coverage across your, your personas, and then you can go deep into verticals and go deep into very specific roles. Yeah. So I want to, I want to talk verticals um, and industries and things like that. You know, it seems like you obviously have a bunch of different personas. How do you think about industries and verticals? So they're definitely important to us because in, in our business, there are certain industries and verticals that are more highly regulated. So financial service, uh, HLS, those are the types of industries uh, that we've had particular success with. 
and it's important. It's important to be able to speak their language. So they'll have Salesforce configured in a very different way than a typical customer, a typical B2B software customer. And so you have to be able to speak to uh, their terminology and, and who they, they sell to, as well as, as the different pressures on their environment. So um, we do have a bit of a vertical focus. That also comes with uh, product focus as well. I think one challenge that some companies have is they have a product that is not verticalized, but they go after the vertical messaging. And it can take a ton of time and energy to maintain a bunch of vertical messaging. So you've got to think about when you go into verticals, you've got to think about what is the vertical, and I'm going to solve that problem all the way through. And in our case, we've got partners like Encino and Viva and, and others that have a vertical approach, and we can partner with them on the go-to-market strategy. Yes. So how do those partnerships uh, work? So the partnerships, we have an alliance team that, that strikes partnerships. And so um, they kind of run the gamut, to be totally frank. Our most important partnership is certainly with Salesforce. They have amazing programs uh, to tap into. And we want to be able to, to reach out to all the Salesforce AEs and give them a sense that um, this is an awesome product to sell into your install base. We want to kind of let them know that this product requires very little implementation resources. Kind of log in with your Salesforce credentials. You know, you, you say, this is what I want to back up. You hit run and it's running in the background. And so a lot of times when you think about a partner, you have to kind of think about what motivates them and their sales team. And in the case of a, of a Salesforce AE, the nice thing is that they can sell more of their stuff if they introduce own backup because their customers will be able to innovate faster with, with fewer sort of disasters, if you will. And, uh, and that allows them to, to kind of be more successful. So we need to, to do a great job of kind of channeling each of our partners to understand that. And we've done that with some of our other, other partners. We, as I said, we have deep integrations with a number of platforms. Our ultimate vision is to be you know, the cloud data uh, protection platform for a lot of different SaaS apps. So Salesforce is where we got our start. We've taken on some vertical CRM systems, and then we will uh, also expand in, into other products uh, at the end of this year. That's really exciting. And you know, one of the things that, that I've, I thought was pretty fascinating in, in doing the research for this was just how much of data recovery uh, or data loss is just due to you know, accidents, accidental deletion. You know, 33% of data loss is accidental deletion, you know, you have, you know, 70% of data losses, user errors. I mean, this is something that like, you know, is not going away anytime soon. And we have so many tech tools now, it seems, uh, you know, like it's uh, more of a need than ever. Yeah, I'd say that there are two big macro trends that are kind of driving it. One is that as we move more of our business to, to the cloud, we are relying on Salesforce to a greater and greater degree to automate that. You know, we're building custom apps and custom objects and custom workflow. And kind of the second big trend is, is that we have seen a shift from like pro code to low code to no code. And there are many times where, you know, you would typically have a seasoned developer kind of set this up, but you might need in this case, and it might be from a backlog perspective, you might need to take the low code route or the no code route. And so it's easy to introduce these bugs into the system that might wipe out data that you didn't intend. So basically any Salesforce developer, you know, anybody with those admin perms becomes a, a risk to the organization. And then you also have, you know, it's, I think it's less often, but you have the risk of malicious intent, somebody deleting an account or something like that when they leave. I think that that's, that happens much, much less frequently. I think most of the time it, it just 
really is that human error. Let's get to our next segment, The Playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you can open up that playbook, and whether it's plays that you're running at own backup right now or ones that you've run in the past, we'll get into some real demand gen secrets here. Let's start off. Three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items. I'd have to start with the App Exchange Marketing Program. You know, given our focus on the Salesforce ecosystem, it's, it's the right audience and they've got the right programs to, to, to reach folks, particularly when, when the events machine is rolling. You know, when you had the Salesforce World Tours going, you had the ability to get into, you know, cities across the country and around the world. And, and that's really powerful for us. You know, when we know that everybody we're going to go meet at that event is a potential fit for our product, it's a terrific one. You know, the second one I would say is, is around conversational marketing. And, you know, the reason I put that one up there, this could be like a drift or a qualified, it's uncuttable because I think it's the future of how we engage our, our prospects and customers. It's less about forms and more about getting them to the right person who can help. It's about improving the quality of conversation, you know, that, that you have with your brand. And it's about making sure that you make the connection in real time. Like the idea that someone fills out a form and you spend the next two weeks trying to follow up with them. Like that's off. So I would say that conversational marketing is, is uh, something that we are investing in in a big way. So the third uncuttable budget item I would have to say is video. You know, I've been a huge proponent of video for many, many years because I think it delivers that clear and concise message in a format that's, that's really easy to share. And I'm also a proponent of, of making sure that that video gets up onto YouTube. YouTube's the second biggest search engine on the web, so you want to be there. But it's also when someone receives that YouTube link, there's something that's just not threatening about it. It's the type of thing that you would pass around inside your organization to, to advocate for a product and to help people understand what it's capable of. So those would be the three, three uncuttable budget items. I want to unpack each of those a little bit, but we'll start with video because video is something that is really expensive when it's done wrong, it's really done wrong. And when it's done right, it's really done right. So what types of investments are you making in video? What types of videos are you creating? Oh, that's a great question. So at Salesforce, I, I ran the video program and the YouTube channel and the live events. And so I saw across our entire catalog what types of videos were, were the most successful. And um, it was always very, very consistent. The, the demo videos are the ones that typically get your, your highest view counts. Those are those are the assets that are, are super powerful because there's real intent there and you're able to describe the product in, in a very, very compelling way. So that's where I would start is really just great demo videos. Well, so I, let me jump in. So I've, I've done a Salesforce demo video, like I've been in one. And so I know, you know, it was like a three day shoot and we had, I mean, I don't know the cost on it, but it was a lot for sure. It was a lot, a lot of money that they put into this. I think we had between six and eight people on the shoe, significant resources behind that. And kind of everybody always is like, yeah, well, we're not Salesforce. But the truth of the matter is like, those demo videos are so well done and so well shot and so meticulous that they work. Like they close deals, you know what I mean? So I'm just curious, like, I know you don't have Salesforce budget anymore, but then how do you kind of replicate that same secret sauce? There's a spectrum in terms of what you can spend on a video and what Salesforce does is absolutely world-class. You know, the videos are, are incredible. 
they haven't always been that way. There was a there was a time where I think it was Sarah was recording these great, you know, two and a half, three minute videos from from kind of a phone booth on the seventh floor. And and so it's absolutely possible to do a really good demo video on a lower budget. It comes down to writing a great script. That's really where it begins. And then there's some work to kind of animate in the, the screens and that type of thing. But, but it comes down to the script. That's the most important thing. How do you get uh, your message across in 60 or 90 seconds? The other thing I would say is always think about video as um, think about the cost per view. Try to get your organization to, to put that lens on the videos that are produced. Because cost per view, it can be rough. You know, sometimes you have to calculate how much a person's time and energy went into it. But if you have a focus on cost per view, then you can kind of get people thinking about not just the video I create, but how do I promote it? Like, am I, am I you know, hitting publish and done? Or am I really thinking about all of the various channels that this video could be leveraged? You know, have I communicated to, to the sales team about how they can use it? Have I gotten it into, into those sequences that are being sent out? Is it embedded on the right pages? You know, do I need to put a little bit of advertising dollars against it to get it off to a strong start? So I think that the key is really whatever your budget is, try to think about cost per view. Think about what success looks like and what is, how do you drive that cost per view down? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great way of looking at it. I, you know, I would add the fact that I think all of our fear is that you spend, you know, X amount of dollars on a video and then you launch it and, and it's a customer video, let's say, uh, or testimonial video. And you check back a couple of weeks later and there's 29 views. And you're like, shoot, we, our company's 300 people. We got 29 people that have viewed this. And then you look embarrassed to the customer and, you know, the whole thing kind of ends up being a nightmare. And you talked about putting a little ad spend behind the video. It seems to me like it's kind of non-negotiable. If you're going to spend all the money to create the asset, you, you have to market it, right? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's definitely true. But it also comes down to the type of video. So customer videos are tremendous. They are great at bringing the customer into the room at events, in the sales cycle, and that type of thing. But the expectation that they will get tons of views on, uh, on YouTube is, is probably not the best expectation. Because a customer video typically speaks to a very specific point. You know, it's, it's a customer in a certain vertical of a certain size. And so all of a sudden, you know, it's not necessarily a question that I woke up this morning asking. It is a, a very specific story. So customer videos are, are valuable, but they typically are not going to get your best view counts. And that makes it all the more important that you think about the channels that you're going to use it in. You know, how do you get the sales team to, to use it to bring it into, into deals? And how do you use it in events to make those events feel bigger? The thing that I would say is that if it is the type of video that you want to have, you know, a showcase number of views, then like you need to put spend in it. Conversely, if, if I told you that, you know, you had a video that had 29 views, but the 29 people who viewed it were the, you know, 29 of the Fortune 30 CEOs, you'd be like, this is the most successful video ever created, right? Uh, or successful ad campaign. So and I think that people just so often get lost in that of like making a video for one hyper-specific use case that there's only 500 customers that would even have this and only 300 of them, you know, would really watch this video. And of those, like, 150 of those people probably wouldn't watch a video anyways, you know, getting that small view count is still a win. And like you said, if you go back to cost per view, it's like, well, how much effort do we have to get in front of, you know, Salesforce admins that are, have been there two years that are, you know, looking to make sure that they're, they have something to back up their solutions 
that might fit the bill if you do the if you do your calculations correctly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, on both sides of that. On, on one side, the advertising can make a video look more interesting. You know, a video that has 30 views, you might not hit play. But if a video has, you know, a thousand views since last week, hey, that, that's kind of interesting. Like maybe I will hit play and, and does it have a bunch of likes as well? So sometimes that is, is something that propels a video to, to give it momentum. On the second part of that, in terms of picking the topic, think about your buyer's journey and what are the questions, what are the biggest questions that they ask? What are the questions that get asked in every sales cycle? And, you know, the reason we've been talking about demo videos is in every sales cycle, somebody says, could I get a demo of the product? Could I see the product? Could I understand how it will solve my problem? You know, those are the most prevalent questions in the, the sales cycle. And so that's why those are the videos to start with. You're so right. Man. You've got me fired up because it's something that, you know, similar to your website, uh, or, or, or it's actually really like a piece of your website, that is something that is so often underutilized or underdone is just having like a super clean and crisp demo video. And it's so funny because a lot of startup companies have or high growth companies have it because you kind of get it drilled into you. But some legacy companies, you know, they have a sprawling website with assets everywhere all over the place that are hard to get to, but they don't have that one killer demo video that speaks to, you know, the primary use case or, or whatever it is, or for, for that segment that they're going after that persona or, or vertical or whatever it is. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So any, anything else that you wanted to, uh, to touch on for some of the partner marketing or, or conversational or. Uh, or events or anything like that? Let me just give you a quick analogy of how to think about own backup. And if this is a better way to describe it to folks, then, then great. So the question is, what does your company do? Who are your customers? So I would say that one way of thinking about own backup is that we proactively protect your data. And if you picture Salesforce as an apartment building, an apartment building that has lots of tenants, a big multi-tenant apartment building, Salesforce does a great job of keeping that building secure. You've got a security guard at the front desk. It does a great job of, of making sure that there's connectivity in the building. Just make, does a great job of making sure it, it's well-maintained and you've got a, a roof over your head, if you will. There's structural integrity. But what they can't account for is what happens inside the unit. So if you hang a piece of art on the wall and it falls off, or if you leave the bathtub running, that is on you. And so that's how the shared responsibility model in almost all cloud applications work. They manage the multi-tenant building and it's services like own backup that, that protect your unit inside from damage and they help you recover quickly. What is one thing that you are doing or that you've done that was not working or a tactic that uh, is maybe your most cuttable budget item? You know, one thing that I see fading away is, is cold outreach. Every company has a pipeline gap to fill, but cold outreach makes no sense at all. Now, don't get me wrong. We use it at, at own backup and we have to use it to get to our number. But generally, cold outreach is expensive, inefficient, stressful. It often yields disappointing results. And so these days, like if you're a high value prospect, you know, you're bombarded with unsolicited calls and emails and advertisements that, that you're going to tune out. So marketers really need to kind of figure this out. I'm convinced that in the near future, companies are, are going to come up with a way to, to break through the noise and get to warm introductions at scale. The age-old adage is that great sellers know relationships matter most. Winners build relationships and make the most of them. And in time, I think that people are going to realize that selling against an endless stream of strangers is just going to be a losing strategy. 
So that's what I think is, is kind of the big shift that we're going to see in, in demand gen and in marketing over the next couple of years is the switch from cold outreach to warm introductions. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think it's something that is, is so obvious now in retrospect, if, uh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're an executive, how many cold outreach emails you get every day, how much cold outreach you get on LinkedIn, how much cold outreach you get everywhere. I'm curious, you know, how do you measure success for your marketing initiatives? Well, I'd say that, you know, your North Star KPIs are, are thinking about pipeline. That's job one. And uh, making sure that the sales team has the pipeline to hit their number. And it's not just enough to hit the pipeline number, but you have to have pipeline coverage. So sales reps in, in different territories and, and markets all have the pipeline they need. So that's where you constantly have to be thinking. Clearly, you also want to think about your CAC that you're getting from, uh, from the different campaign data that, that you're producing. So are the programs efficient uses of, of money and driving interest? I like to, to look at pipeline productivity per rep. That's a, a good indicator of me of are we making our reps in the field more efficient? So if you say that like a inside sales rep can generate, you know, 15 opportunities a month and an outbound one can generate 10, you know, how do you push those numbers to, to like, you know, double those numbers? And so if you can constantly monitor that one, I think it's another good one. And then below that, I think that, you know, everything else is kind of an early warning system. You know, if you're a marketer, you're, you're constantly, you know, squeezing one thing and it inflates another thing. So you've got to have these different sensors throughout your funnel to say, like, how are we tracking? How is that trending over time? And so th that's how I think about the measurement within marketing. Jamie, do you have a favorite campaign that you've done in your career? You know, I'd have to say the campaign I'm working on right now, I'm really energized about it and excited this summer, there was this product that I, I got introduced to called the Hero Grill. And this thing is amazing. It's like a, a grill the size of a laptop. The charcoal comes in these little trays that you slide in. It's organic. The food tastes great. It's super easy to clean up. You can throw it in the dishwasher. And it's small enough that you can just like leave it in your car or your boat or use it on a fire escape. It's just like awesome. So when I stumbled upon this product, I said like, wow, this is going to make a great campaign. Like, you know, who doesn't want a hero grill? It's like perfect for the pandemic. And um, there was also this tie in that it's like, be a hero, you know, save the day, like be resilient. And so I'm really excited to, to roll this campaign out. It's going to be a direct mail campaign where we send it to a bunch of people who we view as heroes in, in our community and, and in our society. And, and I just think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to tie it in with a Zoom event as well. So we're going to have a, a couple of events where people who receive these Hero Grills are going to be able to sort of jump online and all grill together from all different places uh, across the country and, and maybe around the world. And, uh, you know, still kicking around some ideas on, on who is going to host those, but we thought like maybe a celebrity chef or a athlete like on a, on a Sunday afternoon, or maybe it's like a comedian keeping things lively. So I just thought that that was a really fun way to cut through the noise, sort of build community. And it's also something that could be multi-step too. Like if you think about it, you know, you ship them the grill, but maybe you ship them some like charcoal refills like two months later to, to check in on them. So that's the campaign I like right now. I think we're going to be able to take it in a lot of different directions and hopefully it's something people talk about. This is epic. I'm looking at it right now and I'm going to buy one of these. This is exactly what I'm looking for. I might have to give you guys a promo code to, to announce on this podcast so that you can 
you know, track that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. We'll, 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 uh, we'll throw it in. Uh, we'll throw it, yeah, no, throw it in the, in oh, the show notes. Only kidding, but it's a great product. Free shipping over on orders over 99 bucks. I'm so in, this is great. Um, well, so it's funny you say that. I mean, like I always think about technology companies and product companies specifically like consumer goods that so rarely do partnerships. And yet the classic one obviously is, you know, the ABM, hey, we're going to buy everybody on your team. Patagonia is sort of a thing is, is kind of the one you see the most, but there are all sorts of experiential things. And this is kind of fits the bill, right? It's experiential. It's interesting. You could talk about it. You know, everybody loves food. You know, that's it, a great idea. You know, I think that with, with all these types of campaigns, if you can get the person to, to use the product, to enjoy the product, they will think of you fondly. And it's great if you can put your logo on it and so on. But if that logo prevents them from using it, or it's just a tchotchke that's going to end up in the trash can or, or a t-shirt drawer, that type of thing, you haven't had the impact that, that you might otherwise have if you kind of look for ways to make the logo smaller, to really focus on the experience and that bonding experience, and then it will pay dividends down the road. What about a campaign that was your biggest learning experience? All right. So worst campaign ever. I've got a good one for you. So back in the day, I was running a product line at Salesforce called Salesforce Ideas. And this was the technology powering our idea exchange, the Dell Idea Storm, and the, the My Starbucks Idea site. And so I got into my head like, wow, like why doesn't this exist? You know, every company has an 800 phone number. Like why, why shouldn't all of the top brands have a suggestion box where they're trying to source innovative ideas on on how they can improve their product or services. And so, you know, I went online, I went to go GoDaddy and then I started searching and I was like, okay, well, you got my Starbucks idea. What if you had my appleidea.com? How about my disneyidea.com, my Toyota idea, my Nike idea? And all of these domains were available. And I was just like, oh my God, of the top hundred brands, like 98% of them, these domains are, are available. So it's like, how awesome of a campaign would it be if we bought these domains and then we set up a site for them and we dropped some sample ideas into the site and branded it and showed like how far we could take it and kind of reached out to the executives and, and to see if we could get a meeting to pitch them on this concept. And so I went ahead and, you know, domains are not that expensive. I put it on the credit card, bought the top hundred domains. And uh, a couple days later in the mail, I start getting cease and desist letters boom, 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 all of these top brands start shooting me these cease and desist letters. So I made a, a total mess up. Like I dove into this, like thinking it was a great, great idea. Uh, but clearly they own the trademarks and the top 100 brands are, you know, a little bit defensive about those trademarks. They want to protect them. So that was uh, a mistake that I learned. You know, fortunately it wasn't anything worse than that, but it's, um, it's a treat getting a whole bunch of cease and desist orders in uh, the mail. Yeah, that's, um, we had, uh, Scott Holden on the show, CMO of ThoughtSpot, and, uh, he had some good cease and desist letters from his, uh, Salesforce days as well. <laughs> yeah. If you don't get a cease and desist order, you're not trying, I guess. <laughs> so how do you develop uh, a relationship with sales and how do you know if it's not working? Well, you know, it's, um, it starts with just really regular one-on-ones up and down the, the sales team. Like you want to get all the way down to the front lines and, and get to the point where, you know, in the old days we would wear splitters, but that, that type of concept where you really have great empathy for, for their job. 
you have to go into it with the perspective that if you're a marketer, it's sales who is paying your salary and they're the ones closing the deal. And however, you know, if you think sales is off, you've got to take a step back and you have to realize that they're financially driven to hit their number. They're, they got to put food on the table for, for their family. So they're doing what they're doing, you know, out of, out of necessity to get to that number. And so when you connect with, with a sales leader, often I start off by asking like, how do you get to your number? Like break it down for me. Like where, what works for you? If you, if you begin a month, how do you think about getting to that number and where's the friction? And if you can do that, then, then you can really build up um, a strong relationship with sales. And, you know, in terms of knowing whether it's working or not, it comes down to trust and trust. Like there are different ways of thinking about that. It's, it's clear communication. Do you have a good feedback loop? It's about competency. They have to trust that you are a competent marketer and it's about character. It's about delivering what you say you will not, not just promising a roadmap, but, but showing them what you've done for them uh, lately. So ultimately, you'd like to get to the point where you've got kind of a reverent relationship, you know, that kindred feeling of reciprocity, like, you know, oh, I work with a, a, an amazing sales team and an amazing sales leader, and they're saying the same about marketing. That's, that's what you're trying to get to in that sales and marketing relationship. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension. Jamie, have you had a dust up in your career? People who know me will probably say I'm pretty even keeled and optimistic. But there, there are two good stories that come to mind. And, and I really like this question. The first one is an example of just adjusting your style based upon what's important to others. This was years ago. I was brought in to, to run marketing at a company. And when I got there, just all kinds of stuff was broken. And the sales and marketing relationship just wasn't great. And I thought that um, you know, if I dove in and started fixing things, that eventually that would lead to a strong relationship. And the team, we, we recruited some amazing people and we delivered a new website and, and a tight Salesforce implementation and we had a great content engine. Um, but the harder I pushed to, to deliver for the team, the more we kind of pushed to make it data-driven like we had it at Salesforce, the more that sales and marketing relationship eroded. And, um, you know, there's situations that, that it's easy to say, oh, it's not a cultural fit or stylistically we're, we're too different. But I think that the real lesson here, and, and marketers face this, I, like, I know that marketers come up against this, is sometimes you have to relax your ideals to earn trust. You have to, to sort of put yourself in their shoes and kind of really, as Clarence So at Salesforce used to say, you know, it's more important to be effective than to be right. And so I think that that's, um, that's just a, a really good lesson in bridging the sales and marketing divide, is to think about you know, what is the right pace to introduce things to, to sales. And how do you build trust in those relationships? You mentioned that you had a uh, second dust up. What's that one? Oh, my second dust up. You know, this this happened years ago, and uh, and we had just acquired a company called Crispy News, and Crispy News is what powered our ID exchange. And and so I went into the products organization to to help that company integrate and and take the product to market. And you know, it might have been like the team was a week or two in, in the offices and I get CC'd on an email chain between Michael Dell and Mark Benioff. And uh, Mark was congratulating Michael on, on taking back the CEO role at, at Dell. And he threw out there, he's like, hey, 
Michael, you should have an idea exchange like this. And Michael Dell writes back like, I love it. You know, would love to do this. Like, how do we do it? And uh, Michael Dell went on to say, well, listen, we've got this event with, I'm going to be on stage with Steve Jobs like in, in seven days, something like that. Could we stand it up by, by that time? And uh, so I'm on this and clearly this is like the biggest break we've had for the product line. Like if Dell is going to roll it out, if, if it's going to happen in an event with Steve Jobs, like that's absolutely amazing. So we jumped on the phone with the team at Dell, the IT team. And, you know, through our, our conversations, we began to talk about like load and I kind of hit mute on my phone and I lean over to Nori. I was like, Nori, where are the servers for this thing? And he kicks a box under his desk and he's like, this is it. And so we're just like, oh God, like this is, this is not going to go well. We definitely were not prepared to take on customers and, and certainly not at this scale. But as we kind of continued the conversation with the team at Dell, they said, listen, we will pull servers off the line, get down to Round Rock. We will stand this up and, and we're going to just throw hardware at it and make it happen. So I, I grabbed my, my boss between meetings and I kind of give him the breakdown of the situation. He's like, get, you know, listen, this is, this is you know, two C-level leaders. We got to make it happen. And so I went down to Austin and uh, went down with the, the other developers from Crispy News and we stood this thing up. We made it happen and somehow we pulled it off. But in the process, this was also living in Dell's data center. So it was Salesforce's first on-premise deployment. And uh, I remember being in the airport in Austin, kind of catching my flight back to San Francisco after we got through this thing. And my Parker Harris's name comes up on my caller ID. And I'm like, oh, man. Oh, man. And Parker is like, what the hell did you just do? And Parker is fantastic. Like, so such a great guy, such a lovable guy. I definitely, I thought at that moment I might have lost my job. And it was one of those things, Parker's like, how are we going to get this out of, you know, Dell's data center? And so, you know, we were able to get through it. We were able to get through it. It was definitely a, a humbling experience. And I think that what I learned, I mean, we, we eventually had to kind of get it back, rewritten from Ruby on Rails to Java and get it back in the Salesforce data center. But what I learned is, is just, you know, you never want to fail alone. You know, when you have something like this that, that impacts people, you've got to zoom out. And you've got to think about all of the people that, that may be impacted, really make sure that all of the people that, that are relevant to this are in the loop from a communication perspective. And so for young people in your career, I'd say there are definitely times where you've got to move mountains and deliver for the customer, but also make sure that you never fail alone, that, that you bring folks with you. And they are all sort of eyes wide open in terms of what we're going to go do and how we're going to go do it. That's great dust up. It's like a buzzword bingo of uh, famous technology leaders that uh, that young Jamie was was ready to uh, to tick off. That's for sure. I'm curious, what big trends do you see uh, in marketing that are that are coming? Uh, the big trend that I, that I see is, is back to that, that warmer introduction. So I don't, we don't need to go through that again, unless you guys want me to sort of repeat it in a different way. No, that's um, cool. But I definitely, I truly believe like that's, that is a, a really big trend that's happening. The reason I think that it's happening, the technology is just about to flip. So is there. And today you don't have any enablements or any process within an organization around how to facilitate a warm introduction. There's no training. Like if you are, are doing a warm introduction from a friend, a colleague, or a customer, like all three of those are different flavors, but we don't, we don't train our teams on, you know, use these email templates if you're trying to get a, 
intro from an executive, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's not something we teach our teams. Okay. Let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers, just like how quickly you can talk to somebody on your website with qualified.com. We love the team at qualified.com. They're the presenting sponsor of this show and they're the best. Go to qualified.com. You know, your, uh, your ideal prospects, they're on your website right now and you can talk to them. Your sales folks can talk to them in real time. Check them out, qualified.com. Quick hits, Jamie. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, do you have a book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently you enjoyed? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm constantly kind of picking up books. The book I like, yeah, I was going to give you the Emerald Mile. I think it's a great book about uh, rafting the... Uh, rafting the Grand Canyon. So that's my summer read. If you weren't a CMO, what do you think you'd be doing? I might have to go back to building haunted houses. <laughs> do you have a favorite quote or, or phrase you live by? The other day I was reading this German philosopher, Goethe, and hopefully I pronounced that right. But, you know, nothing is more highly to be prized than the value of each day. I just think that that's like a great inspirational quote that just live life to the fullest and and make sure that you're valuing each day have you picked up any new skills during uh, shelter in place well you know my my year started with with two broken legs and a ski accident so that happened right at the same time as as covid and uh and so i've had kind of a, a an interesting covid but i will say that i purchased an electric bike and it's been incredible you know early days i was i was wearing it with two air casts kind of going places. But on an electric bike, you can just go farther without that anxiety of like, oh, I'm going to have too many hills that I can't get up and down. So um, that was kind of the big game changer for, for my year. What's your best advice for CMOs trying to figure out demand gen? Well, I mean, it all starts with, with getting to the point where you can, can uh, measure the machine. And so measure what's taking place today and, and invest in that ops and analytics foundation. That's that's the number one thing, wrapping your head around the numbers and finding really good people at, uh, uh, who understand the systems. Jamie, this has been awesome having you on the show. Uh, uh, we could, we could have gone for another hour. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.